Hello, everyone. It's Pete Davis here, your host of the Current Affairs Podcast. I am joined today by Ryan Grimm. Hello, Ryan. How you doing, Pete? Ryan Grimm is the D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. He is formerly the D.C. Bureau Chief of The Huffington Post, and he is the recent author of the book, We've Got People, From Jesse Jackson to AOC, The End of Big Money and the rise of a movement. Love that title and subtitle, Ryan. Oh, thank you. Ryan, I have brought you to the Current Affairs headquarters today to talk to you about three things. The first is that I have brought you here because you are not just the Intercept's DC Bureau Chief. I would like to state today that you are the whole movement's DC Bureau Chief in the (laughs) sense that you are the best person to talk to if we want to understand what is actually going on in DC. Behind the talking points, behind the campaign strategies, what are these politicians actually like when no one is watching except for you, Ryan Grimm? Right. That's kind of you to say. Yeah, I've been here a god-awful long time. That was actually going to be my first question, which is, how long have you been watching The Hill and D.C. politics? You could date it to the midterms of 2006, when I got a job, actually a side gig, blogging for the Washington Monthly about the midterms. They had a handful of young writers who they, who they brought on for, I think, $25 a post. And that was actually how I met Chris Hayes for the first time. He was in Chicago at the time writing for In These Times and also blogging on the on the campaign. So it's fair to categorize you as part of this set of blogosphere folks that have now become established media folks. In a way, I was a little bit peripheral to the rise of the blogosphere because I was in advocacy at first. But then I came into the blogosphere kind of through that Washington Monthly thing. But yeah, I, I always knew all of those people like Ezra Klein and Matthew Iglesias and Chris Hayes and all those folks, but I was a little distant from them as well. Well, 2006 is a perfect time to start watching DC because that is when it all started to change. And this movement that you talk about in the book and the cleavages in the Democratic Party that we are now facing in this primary started showing up. The specific reason I brought you in today is because the 2020 primary is now at that point in the season where everyone is making claims about what each candidate is really like deep inside in their soul. And we're all millions of people divining the true reality of these humans. And you actually saw them when they were normal Congress people. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to just run through these characters that are in the headlines every day. And if you could just tell me in your 14 years covering Congress, what your take on them is from that experience. Yeah, sure. Which one do you want to do first? Let's start with the big kahuna, Bernie versus Warren, and then we'll do the others yep. too. But that's what everyone wants to hear. You know, everyone is making claims about how they actually were in Congress, how truly corrupt they were, how much of a movement person each was, theories of change. So I'd love to hear what your experience of each was in Congress and how that plays out in the election this year. Yeah. And I think the perspective that people like me had that 10, 12, 14 years, whatever it's become now, really has colored how we see these folks. And for some of us, it ossified at a first impression. And people haven't been able to kind of take a new look at Bernie Sanders as he kind of changed into a movement figure in 2015. I think the point that I'm making there might become clearer after I after I say what I what I've got to say. So Bernie Sanders, when he first came to Congress, you know, elected in 1990, he became a kind of co-founder of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You know, some of the other co-founders 
aren't people that you would necessarily think of as terribly progressive. So I started seeing him, like I said, in 2007, when I got my first job at a startup called Politico. Oh, wow. Okay. It was called The Politico because they couldn't buy Politico.com at first. Somebody was squatting on it. Once they were able to buy Politico.com, they dropped The Politico. And so I was thrown into covering Congress in 2007, 2008. And so that was Bernie Sanders' freshman year in the Senate. He had moved from the House to the Senate. And freshmen in the Senate and he was no exception to this, don't tend to make much of an impact. There's a huge cultural stigma around doing anything productive as a freshman senator. You're just not supposed to do it. Bernie Sanders' reputation at the time was as somebody who's kind of a truth teller, a gadfly, an iconoclast, somebody who was happy to go his own way, you know, that, that represented kind of the old left and was kind of a marker. He and Dennis Kucinich kind of would be lumped together a lot. Yeah. So that I was going to ask, were there any other figures at the time that were kind of like him? How much of a true original was he in Congress? Kucinich would probably be the best analogy, but they didn't work together a ton because in Bernie's defense, you know, from the 80s through recently, say 2009, there wasn't much room to get anything progressive done other than, you know, the Ted Kennedy style of, of finding some deal with Republicans where you're going to make something not as bad as it used to be. You weren't going to get single payer done. You weren't going to get free college. These things weren't even remotely talked about. And so you could understand why Sanders wasn't terribly engaged in the kind of coalition politics. You know, he was not at all somebody who was kind of organizing his co-founding of the Progressive Caucus aside. He wasn't organizing blocks of votes to try to take down legislation or to try to move things one way or another. The closest I covered him would be 2009 and 10 when actually it probably started a little bit before that, but he and Ron Paul got together to push an audit the Fed piece of legislation. That was the first time, certainly as a senator, that he saw real success with a piece of legislation. For instance, during the Affordable Care Act, he had an amendment to do single payer. Then Republicans said, well, we want the entire amendment to be read aloud, which would have taken days. And Sanders said, fine, I withdraw the amendment. That was kind of his push on single payer there. But on the audit, the Fed, he got it through. Now it was weakened and he was frustrated by that, but he used outside power and a kind of left right push onto the center and made and, and forced the center to collapse to the point where when it finally passed the Senate, when it looked like it never had a chance of passing, but when it finally did, it passed almost unanimously under the theory of change that if you get the wings, if you get both the far right wing and the far left wing, that the center simply can't hold because they have nowhere to run. So that was Alan Grayson and Sanders on the left and Ron Paul on the right, and they got it through. And there was an audit of some of the Fed books done, and it, it revealed interesting things. So that was kind of the, the most that he was able to actually get done legislatively. He got some community health center money stuck into the ACA. And so would it be fair, you know, there's this Clinton world 2016 talking point of, you know, Bernie Sanders is a do nothing senator, whereas, you know, Hillary Clinton gets things done. And there's this other side that, you know, Matt Iglesias pushes a lot on Twitter, which is Bernie Sanders is a standard senator who kind of does as much as most senators do with his ideology. I mean, do nothing is only unfair in the sense that the political conditions were not such that he could get done what he wanted to get done. And he seems to have made that calculation. So he, he kind of separated himself from, from the institution. One of the things about him, you know, going back to his early years, he 
felt like staff itself was inherently corrupting. And you need staff if you're going to kind of have much of an impact on legislation. But if you decide that the legislation isn't is so bad, it's not necessarily worth impacting. It's much more important to stand firm and you know, strongly speak out against what's wrong with it and lay down a, a moral marker. And he's not totally wrong that staff can be in, inherently not necessarily inherently, but it can be corrupting. Staff on the Hill are often careerists who are looking to moderate their bosses. And that was something that he was concerned about. His answer, instead of trying to build a pipeline of progressives who he would you know, train and build more movement figures, was to just not have staff, basically. You know, he had, a, he had a few people that he trusted deeply. David Sirota worked for him in the early 1990s. You know, so there, there is a kernel of truth to what Hillary Clinton was saying there. On the other hand, Yes, Hillary Clinton got things done. They, were, they tended to be awful things. Yeah, That's very insightful. I've heard from progressive leaders in Washington, you know, they hand it to Bernie that he's more ideologically strong than Warren, but they say Warren has an amazing staff. And they always said that. And I always wondered, why does it matter, you know, when they're president, they'll hire someone. And then another thought on staff is, you know, like Matt Stoller was... Alan Grayson's staffer, and now Matt Stoller's changing America with his antitrust push. So these staffers yeah, are and actually... Went, actually... And Stoller worked for Bernie on the budget committee, too. Oh, wow. So this story, you know, personnel is a serious part of this. But one other thing I've heard about Bernie in Congress is that Matt Taibbi wrote a famous profile of him early on in his rise, which was that he had an incredible democratic populist spirit in his relation to letting the public know about how Congress worked. And so he said working with him as a journalist was totally different than every other congressperson because he was genuinely interested in showing the people how power worked. And that was one of the things that attracted me to Bernie early in 2015. What was your experience with interacting with him as a journalist? Yeah, that that sounds right. Now, one of the things that I noticed about Bernie Sanders, and people can interpret this however they want, was that so in when I got there in 2007 for Politico, first time I asked a question of Dennis Kucinich on the speaker's lobby, his eyes popped out of his head because of whatever the question was. It was something about the politics of oil in Iraq and how it was influencing the current floor legislation around withdrawing troops. Later, he told me he'd just never been asked that directly about the role of oil in, in setting war policy. Afterwards, he was, you know, he's like, who are you? Like, what are you? Because he hadn't seen like a left-wing reporter on Capitol Hill. And then when I went in 2009 to work for the Huffington Post, we were the only kind of progressive media at the time that was credentialed to walk around the Capitol and talk to House members and, and senators. Later, I think Talking Points Memo eventually got credentialed. But for a long time, it was just me, which made my job very easy because nobody else was asking the questions that I was asking. And Sanders was always, well, I don't want to say polite because that's not Sanders style. He was always fine to talk with me, but he never, he never would reach out. And say like, here's what happened in the caucus meeting. And if we, you know, let's get this out because it's going to influence the conversation in this direction. And this is a key moment. And lots of politicians do that. They use the media to get a message out without their fingerprints attached to it because the media can just absolutely kill a compromise that's working its way through the system or whatever. And so people can think, well, that's just, you know, you're just bitter that Bernie wasn't like a better source. But I also think it does go to his kind of a lack of interest in the time at being a player in the system, because I think he thought, and I think with reason, that the system was so broken that what was the point of playing by its rules? Might as well go out and just break it and implement a better system. You know, I like to tell younger listeners, you know, if you watch the tapes of like the 2008 
primary debates, let alone the 2004 or 2000 primary debates. It is so completely closed. Like it is so narrow what people are talking about that John Edwards was like the nice labor left person we could hope for. And Dennis Kucinich was being made fun of by John Stewart for being a wackadoodle for things that are now kind of the right end of, you know, culture and economic policy. And so people, I think, don't understand how bad it was. So one question is, what was it like watching this Bernie transition from, fair to say, maybe call him a backbencher Congress, you know, senator, to giving his press conference like on the grass in a rumpled suit with like seven reporters to announce he's running for president to being kind of the most effective intervention in activism in the last 10 years. So what is this transformation you witnessed? That's what I was talking about earlier, that I think it was hard for a lot of people who came up watching Bernie Sanders be one thing, recognize that he was becoming a new thing, recognize the change, the revolution, really, that he was bringing about in politics. People who were inside Washington never believed that he was going to win. And there's, there was no point during the entire campaign where people thought, oh, well, he's surging in such a fashion now that he might actually catch her. That's not entirely fair. Let's say coming out of Iowa the tie and he wins New Hampshire, there may have been a few people who were like, wow, if he can win Nevada, you know, hold his own in South Carolina, this is anybody's ball game. But even people who felt that would think if he can win Nevada and hold his own in South Carolina, Hillary is going to lose and there'll be some dark horse that comes in. The way that in 68, was it Muskie kind of knocks out LBJ and then Robert, and then uh, Robert Kennedy in. Yeah. jumps in and is like, oh, LBJ is beatable. I'm in. So they were kind of expecting a repeat like that, that if the left could take out Hillary Clinton, that didn't mean that the left was going to actually get to walk away with the crown. Somebody else would swoop in and take it. And so there was this cognitive dissonance between the, the, the movement that was being built up and the way that reporters were thinking about it, because since they didn't see it as winning, if you're not winning to them, nothing matters. You know, it doesn't matter that you've got tens of millions of supporters and you're blowing out these rallies. And that analysis, I think, was, also, was shared by a lot of people in, for lack of a better word, the professional left you know, who had worked really closely, like with Elizabeth Warren throughout that decade and had, you know, drafted her to run. And then when she decides not to run, Bernie Sanders runs and people just never kind of recognized the potential for what what Sanders was creating. And if they did, by the time they did, the race was was almost race was almost over. I was one of the people who did come around and said, oh, wow, like what Sanders is doing here is opening up new possibilities for the left. And you kind of have to put Sanders' peculiarities aside and actually focus on his movement and also recognize that it's his peculiarities that are also the things that people love, like the crankiness, the fact that he you know, has been saying the same things for 30 years, the stubbornness, the things that were kind of hurting him and his ability to get some other things done were actually the things that people loved. And you just, maybe you can't have one without the other. For some other people in that sector, they, they just still see Bernie as the cranky gadfly that he was known as back in the, the 1990s or the 2000s. Final question on Bernie before we move to Warren and then to their relationship with each other and how to think about them together. It seems like the great secret to Bernie Sanders is that there's this awful, you know, I like this metaphor of like there was like radiation that happened on American politics between the 1980s and the 2000s. And the only people left that are not kind of automatons, you know, were the people that somehow avoided it by some strange quirk of their biography. And so my theory of Bernie's, it's just he was frozen in amber by not wanting to, like, did not have an interest in 
in kind of craven ambition. And so he just avoided the radiation. And he's actually like a pretty normal 1960s new left, new dealer. But it appears like this strange alien. He's actually become weirder and weirder by everyone else getting more and more radiated. If you were in the 80s, there would have been more and more Bernies. If you were in the 90s, a little less. By the 2000s, a little less. And then by 2016, he's the only one left. Is that your read on it too? Like frozen in amber, Bernie? I think that's really well said. And I think nobody would kind of agree with that more than like 2015 Bernie. When he launched his campaign, you know, he was quite explicit that he wasn't trying to win the election out of the gate, that he thought it was would be awful if there was a coronation, both for the party, his chances, you know, he would argue that you need to have a competitive primary to toughen up your nominee, but also to get in there and, and try to pull the nominee, who was presumed nominee, Hillary Clinton, pull her to the left, you know, get some policy wins, get her committed to some some goals. He was very clear that that was where he was going. It was probably a gradual process, but, you know, December, January or so, he's seeing the energy, he's seeing the crowds. His fundraisers had said, you know, we can probably raise you between 10 and $25 million online. And the guy who said $25 million in the meeting was kind of laughed at. You're going to raise Bernie Sanders $25 million as senator, Farmpy senator nobody's ever heard of. What was the number in the end? It was... Who 225. 225. Wow. Okay. So they hit it. They hit that upper number. So (laughs) December, January, he starts to believe that he really can win. And and he could have. There were scenarios where he could have. It wasn't crazy to believe that. But it wasn't until then that he really started to believe that he could pull it off. Now, let's move to the other great figure of the intranacine debate right now. Elizabeth Warren, when did she first appear on the... You know, I knew that academics loved her even like back in... 2006 because of the two income trap. But when did she start appearing on like Washington's radar? So she came down as the bailout watchdog. I guess it would have been early 2009. In the bailout, there was this stipulation that there would be a commission or a committee that would have some ability to file reports over how Wall Street was spending the money and how the Treasury Department was handling the disbursements of all this bailout money. They tried to not even create the commission. They thought that Everybody would just move on until the IG put out a report and leaked it to the Washington Post saying, hey, you know, they haven't appointed anybody to this. So Harry Reid called Elizabeth Warren and asked her to do it. You know, she had been involved in bankruptcy fights, you know, battling Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden several years earlier. Reid remembered her from that. Reid had read one of her books and and liked it. So she first really comes on the scene through a couple of viral videos where she was interrogating Tim Geithner. He clearly doesn't want to be there explaining what he's doing with the bailout money and why he's not doing anything about bank bonuses, why he's not doing anything about foreclosures, why he's not helping homeowners, and why he's only worried about frothing the runway for the banks. And she's just absolutely slicing him to pieces. And people at the time absolutely loved it. And around that same time, she pushed Barney Frank to include the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as part of the Wall Street reform that they were pushing through. Her argument was, don't wait to do this. Don't do it separately. Like, make this the thing that's the lead of Wall Street reform because it's something that people can understand. You need something to rally around. In in a way that the public option was that for Obamacare, something that people can understand, this ended up becoming that for Wall Street reform and really did kind of drag it across the finish line. And so to the point earlier that I was making, Warren was very good about exploiting the press. Like she very quickly got to know who the Huffington Post reporters are. She would try to figure out, okay, what what's the White House reading? What is Senate leadership reading? What is House leadership reading? She'd figure, out, okay, these are the these are the reporters whose stories get circulated among them. All right, I need to meet these people. 
and I need to cultivate them so that I can feed them information. She was very adept at using people like me and others on the blogosphere and, and in the mainstream press to say like, okay, in this meeting, Chris Dodd suggested that instead of, I'm not, I'm just sort of making one up here, but Chris Dodd suggested that the CFPB run by a, be run by a five-person commission rather than by a, a single director. And the five-person commission was something that Wall Street very much wanted. Yeah, because they could get a Republican, you know, or appoint three commissioners, sneak them through. Five lame commissioners. It's very easy agency to overtake. But if you have one director that can call all the shots, it can be a much tougher agency. So that was a big thing, sole director. And so as there would be kind of moves made against that, she'd leak that. And then the phones would blow up. She was working closely with organized labor. And so she was exploiting outside energy. The difference was that she hadn't really built the outside energy. She was, you know, what Bernie's talking about now is building a movement and then bringing that movement to bear on Washington. What she was doing... She knew where the anger was out in the public, and she knew how to tap into that. And she would use that to force Democratic leaders back into line when they were trying to get out of line. So she always has had this kind of inside-outside view of how you get legislation done. One question I would have for her is, what does she know about building that outside pressure? And actually, it's almost a case that'll prove itself. Like If she can build a grassroots movement that can win the nomination and, and win the White House, she'll show that she can do that. And I think she's serious when she says that she wants to keep that alive, because that's the big fear. Everybody thinks that the same thing that Obama did is going to happen again. I don't think she would do that, because I've seen her use outside pressure to, to her benefit. You know, she very much understands the value of that to her internal fights. When she enters the Senate in 2012, you know, what do the powers that be in the party think of her? Do they think, you know, she's kind of just filling the Ted Kennedy shoes of being kind of, there always will be a heartfelt progressive in the, in the Senate? Or are they like, she's a problem? She's giving us headaches? What is, what is their relationship with her? There was a little both. And it's interesting because like, you know, Chuck Schumer is kind of a partisan first and then a corporate hack second. And so he, after failing to recruit anybody else, Chuck Schumer recruited her to run for Senate in Massachusetts. And then Harry Reid was like her biggest champion. But then Schumer, as soon as she gets the Senate, does everything he can to make sure that she doesn't have any power. The first big fight when she came to the Senate was whether she would be on the banking committee. That was her key demand that she wanted a seat on the banking committee for obvious reasons. And Schumer fought her on that. And Harry Reid gave it to her. And we ended up breaking that story. It was another case of like Reid understanding what the left wanted and saying, like, you know what, we'll do this. He later put her in leadership and Schumer fought him on that too. And Schumer's demand when Reid brought her into leadership was that, well, if you're going to bring her in, you also have to put Mark Warner on leadership. Okay. And Schumer's just totally mask off about this privately. He doesn't even give reasons. He'll just says, I'm doing my bidding for my Wall Street constituents. Or... He does, I mean, he doesn't have to say that. His yeah. nickname's Wall Street Chuck. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, it goes without saying. I'd yeah. love just one minute side story on this incredibly strange figure of Harry Reid. I have to hand it to him. I know he's he's a power player, but he does not resemble others. You know, he's from this town where they suppose more brothels than churches. Yes. He's a boxer. He correctly identified Barack Obama as the future of the party and then now identified Warren as a meteor in the party. What should be our read on Harry Reid? There is no way to read him. He, <laughs> he's just a unique figure. And also like 
probably a little bit corrupt. He, like, he left the Senate with more than $20 million in wealth. Oh, like old school corrupt, not like just doing the bidding corrupt. Right, right. No, no. <laughs> like not. I mean, there. I think there are a few cases for maybe some casino interests and some others. But in general, no, like I'm talking about like real estate deals that overnight make you <laughs> a bunch of money, like that old school stuff. But he was, you know, an, just kind of a Western populist Democrat, you know, New Deal style who hated rich people, like hated them. And it and it drove his politics in a very helpful way. How did he ascend to the Senate majority and not necessarily support, you know, this these are all these contradictions. How do you get that power if he hated rich people? And if he hated rich people, why wasn't he more like Bernie in the Senate? What was the You know, I've always kind of wanted to write a book about him because he's such a mystery. How do you square these multiple weird different things about him? He's completely bizarre with a deft understanding of power and the uses of carrots and sticks, happy to use sticks. And so I think that helps explain how you can hate rich people and and still raise money from them because they know that you can screw them over if you don't ante up. So let's get to 2020 now. Thank you for indulging my Harry Reid mystery. You know, it's it's like Corey Robin just wrote this book on Clarence Thomas, Great Mystery. You know, Harry Reid seems like uh, due in for that, too. We look forward to that for your next something book. Else. So Warren decides to run, and we have all these mixed messages. So we have the Iglesias' of the world telling us they're basically friends. Bernie encouraged Warren to run. You know, they support each other in the Senate. We have other people saying, why would they both be running if they didn't oppose each other? If they weren't happy with throwing support behind each other, people are very mad about Warren not endorsing Bernie in the 2016 election. People on Warren's team are mad that, you know, we have a perfectly fine person. Why don't you endorse her and without the kind of baggage of 2016? What's the true thing going on here with both of them running? My understanding is that a lot of from a lot of people around Warren at the time was that they they legitimately didn't think that that Sanders was going to run. You know, she she launched in December of 2018, right? It was clear she was running by early fall of 2018. And I think the calculation was, well, Sanders did extremely well in 2016. He moved the party. You know, he has an incredible legacy from what he was able to accomplish then. Why risk it all with a long shot bid when you're going to have a crowded field and you're going to have a bunch of other candidates kind of pulling at his, you know, what do you end up with, 45, 46% or so. You're going to have candidates that are pulling away from that. They were wrong. He did end up running. And so once they're both in, they're both in for good. I think they respect each other and they like, you know, they, they generally support each other's policies. I think Friends is overstating it. But I do think that they have a lot more respect for each other than, than some of their more aggressive supporters have <laughs> for each other. Do you have any insight into what the end game would be if, you know, in our own magazine, Nathan J. Robinson wrote, you know, if one of them's losing by a certain time, they should endorse the other. Is that in the cards with what your experience is with these two people? Or is that? Yes, I think so. You know, I think that Warren was one of those people in 2016 who just never thought that Sanders had a chance. And so she, you know, she took a lot of heat for not endorsing Clinton, which I think a lot of people forget. Like she was the only female Democratic senator not to sign letters calling for her to run. And and she declined to endorse her the whole time. And her whole thing was like, well, I'm going to I'm going to husband my capital so that I can use it to pressure her when she's the official nominee. I think that was a mistake. Like she should have endorsed Sanders either way. There's no, there's not much downside anyway. And then when she did ultimately endorse Clinton, you know, it would have had more weight if she'd already endorsed Sanders in the primary. 
But in any event, I think, yes, I think that like this time around, they will be conscious of that. And if one of them, when Warren was down in the single digits early on, you know, I thought that there was a decent chance that by the summer or late fall, she would drop out and endorse Sanders, give him a boost heading into Iowa. Clearly, though, that her trajectory changed over the summer. She's now in the last several polls outpacing Biden by a handful of points and Bernie's still plateaued at you know, between 14 and 20 or so, depending on depending on the poll you're looking at. But I but I think that, yes, that I think before the primary is over, whichever one of them drops out would endorse the other rather than what often happens is that, that somebody drops out and just says, you know, I'll, I'll support whoever wins the nomination, but I don't want to I don't want to intervene. Any final thoughts before I move on to some other figures that you could grant insight on on Bernie versus Warren? I would say that the people who think that there are significant differences between Sanders and Warren aren't necessarily wrong. Like people say, Sanders has been there for decades. And I would also I would also say this, that if Elizabeth Warren does end up becoming the nominee, it is something that I think Bernie Sanders will be very proud of because she wouldn't exist in the way she does in the race now if not for him. In other words, some of these ghouls that are getting behind her are only getting behind her because they're so scared of Bernie Sanders. And the fact that they're that scared of Bernie Sanders is itself an indication that there is some difference between the two of them. Part of it, though, is that Warren is just is better at politics. Like there's nothing stopping Bernie Sanders from calling everybody on the Working Families Party National Committee the way that Elizabeth Warren did. Organizing means having those conversations. And if you're not willing to go out and organize even the Working Families Party, how are you going to organize the Senate? How are you going to organize organize the house that would be kind of the one of the counter arguments you'd make that she's that she's out there doing the work which gets her in trouble from some people on the left say well how you know how dare you talk to these super delegates well you know she's trying to she win. wants to win yeah she wants to win. <laughs> now if you have some evidence that she's offering them something like offering to sell out to them on something and i think it's also i think the criticism on medicare for all is accurate like i, I think that bernie sanders is more committed to medicare for all that is one of my great mysteries which is you know i i think hardcore bernie folks will say she's just wants to ride on the pride of medicare for all without actually supporting it but what is stopping her from supporting it when she's willing to support all these other policies what's your theory of why she's being so waffly. And when she's branding herself so rigorous in the details on this one issue, she can't. And and she's taken hard stances, you know, wealth tax isn't that easy to take. And some of the others, why is she not willing to do it on that issue? If I had to guess, and, and I haven't talked to her about this, it's that she doesn't think that Medicare for All has the votes to get through in the House and the Senate, and that what a Democratic president like her or Sanders will actually be able to get done will be a, a very strong public option. Like Medicare for all, who wants it? Like, who, who is that, Beto or uh, yeah, Buddha Joe judges. Biden, yeah. Buddha, whatever. Like something that would have been the left most possible thing you can imagine in 2009 while they're debating Obamacare will comfortably be able to get through. And so I think she thinks if, if that's the case, then why take the hits on this private insurance stuff if she can pivot a little bit? On the other hand, she's going to take the hits anyway because she's, you know, at the debates, she's committed to saying that her her plan doesn't have private insurance. That's what makes it strange. You know, it's either. I think that what she's doing there is sending some signals to the suburban voters that like, I'm not that scary. You can trust me as a nominee. 
that's just a guess on on that. Okay, one more figure in Washington I'd love to hear about, which is how should we understand Nancy Pelosi? Oh, uh, she is one of yeah. the founders of the Progressive Caucus. She also does 400 fundraisers a year and like yells at teens when they say like, yes. is there a critique of capitalism? Is she just a Paul who's trying to you know, make it work. And this is what you have to do to be Speaker of the House. How should we think about her? So, and this is a place where people would definitely benefit from at least reading the Pelosi chapter in my book. That book again is We've Got People. We've Got People. (laughs) Available at bookstores near you. Available at bookstores near you. Because she is such a fascinating figure, I went deep into her her background. You know, she was raised by basically, mob connected is a bit rough, but her her dad was a, a mayor of Baltimore and a congressman from Baltimore and all Democratic mayors of Philadelphia, Boston, New York, etc., had you know had to work with the mob back then. But she learned machine-style politics at her father's knee, and then she winds up out in California. She becomes super wealthy, married to a very wealthy guy, and so she's in these circles in the '80s when she starts getting involved in Democratic politics out there. And I'm blanking on her her mentor's name at the at the moment, but the congressman from the local area who kind of pioneered big fundraising in a way for House Democrats. Is this Tony Coelho? Or oh, what's his name? John. Oh, Phil Burton. His brother is actually still a state senator out there. And so she kind of becomes a fundraiser for him, hosts a lot of fundraisers at his house. And so she kind of rises through the California party ranks because of her fundraising prowess. And they quickly recognized that she had this ability to both raise money, but also think very strategically and politically, which was kind of the the mantra of of her mentor at the time. And so he ends up dying in 1983. His wife, Sala Burton, took over and she dies in 87. She endorses Pelosi on her deathbed for the special election to replace her. This is a biopic material. Yeah. and and, And so then there's this cage match between Pelosi, who's representing the kind of establishment wing of the Bay Area and Harvey Britt, who was a out gay councilman who was the vice chair of the Democratic Socialists of America. So there's a classic insurgent establishment fight between him and Pelosi. Pelosi has been fighting the DSA for 30 years now. So. <laughs> yeah. Quite literally. And so when she says that she understands, you know, she's from San Francisco, she knows the left, she knows the left from fighting the left. And she barely beat him, won by like 2,000 votes in this knockdown primary battle. And in fact, if they had the current top two system, maybe he wins. He ran his race largely on AIDS and the way that the Reagan administration was was ignoring it. He had passed the first civil union legislation through San Francisco's council, which Dianne Feinstein vetoed. Mayor Dianne Feinstein, she said San Francisco wasn't ready for civil unions. Dianne Feinstein has been who she is like for decades and decades. And so actually it pushed Pelosi to be quite good on that issue as well. So she's been kind of fighting the left for her entire political career. And I think that not to get too deep into the psychoanalysis, but like coming from San Francisco, like that's a wild political scene. And the left there is a crazier left than you have pretty much anywhere else in in the country. And so I think part of her thinks of the San Francisco left as the left nationally. And so she sees San Francisco and she's like, oh, my God, if the rest of the country saw these lefties for what they are, like we would be tossed out. We would never have a shot. I was like, well, that's kind of unique. Like Houston left. That's not the Houston left. And God God bless the San Francisco left. I I love it. I love them to death. 
but they're they're not representative of kind of the the, the national level. Oh, so it's where she comes from. Okay, that's interesting. But it, so I think part of her has just been part of her is that. But yeah, that, but she has this preternatural ability to separate rich people from their money. When she was asked, you know, in 2018, are you going to be Speaker of the House if you take over? She said yes because I raised the most money. She is deeply committed to the the current system because current system rewards the thing that she is best at. This is preacher the choir here, but it is totally you know it's going to be. In the history books that, you know, politicians in Congress were open and explicit about the way you gain power in Congress is to do the most fundraisers. And it, and it's become so naturalized. It's, it's strange how obvious it is. It's very second Gilded Age experience. I want to, in these final minutes, just get to these other two issues. One question on the second topic, which is I want to ask about your role in progressive media while we have you here. I'm fascinated by the Steve Bannon theory of media, where he says, facts get clicks, opinions get shrugs. And he said the secret to conservative ascendance is if they can produce more true facts that support conservative narratives. So he got Breitbart like doing on the ground reporting of some awful headline like immigrant crime vertical or something. But it's true facts just contextualized in a narrative that's bad. And one amazing thing is you've been part of the rise of generating facts for the progressive movement with journalism with integrity in the HuffPost and The Intercept. And I've seen it in my activism. You've covered movements, and then we finally have an article that we can circulate to people, or you've uncovered something and we can use that in activism, or you've covered a candidate and we can send that around and say, look at this candidate. It's in The Intercept. I'd love to hear if you've thought about kind of that facts over opinions theory in your work. 100%. I think he's right about that. I think he has a very loose understanding of facts, but I think you're right. Like He's not saying it's a true fact, even necessarily, but it's it's couched in reporting. And I, you know, when I started at the Huffington Post, one of the things I wanted to do was continue to write in the same AP style that we wrote at it. Politico. You know, my first job was at Washington City Paper, which is our alt weekly here in DC, which has a, you know, a more of an anarchist aggressive kind of tone to it, which I love. It's more fun, but it it holds it holds the reporting back from being taken as seriously in corridors of power. And so by writing in a straight AP tone and writing facts that are true, you're able to then be part of the media ecosystem, which is taken seriously by the people who are making making decisions. That's movement leaders, that's House and Senate leaders, that's, you know, that's, that's across the board. And what you can do is then you can inject new narratives into, into the conversation. And so like, for instance, so the, I mean, the CFPB stuff is a great example. Chris Dodd, who was kind of running the bill, the Wall Street bill for the Senate Democrats, it got to a point where he'd see me in the hallway and like, just sigh. Because like, <laughs> Here he is. It just meant like, oh, God, public option is another great example, too, where like because there were no other lefty reporters up there, all I have to do is go to a senator and say, you know, where, where are you on the public option? Whatever they said was news. And I would just write it up. I remember I called Max Baucus's office once. He was running the finance committee's healthcare process in 2009. And this intern answered and said, I told him who I was. I asked for a press secretary. And the intern said, oh, God, are you going to blow our phone lines up again? Oh, wow. I was like, what are you talking about? And this is a stinging indictment of the Washington Post 
and the New York Times that it took you being at the Huffington Post and at the Intercept to get these stories reported. You know, it's 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 amazing. I watched these presidential press conferences and they're asking him the same like nine questions about Ukraine. And I go, I want Trump on the record. Does he support a $15 minimum wage? That would be my one question. Like, oh, wh- what do you think the minimum wage should be for your voters? That would make him squirm. <laughs> but no reporter ever asked that or no reporter right. ever says, you know, what are you doing with this corrupt Pentagon thing? You know, it's, it's amazing how you can have so many reporters and it's all homogenous. And now there's a lot more of it, which is a good thing. But I do think Bannon's right. Like the drift to takes, the drift to hot takes isn't terribly helpful to the left. I think it's good to debate theory and, you know, to work out ideas, but it's much more effective for the left to be breaking news and putting out new information to the world that, that supports left narratives. Final question. Jesse Jackson is in the subtitle of your book. And I think he's kind of forgotten until your book came out in the young millennial left as a figure in our story. And I just love if you could give us a minute or two on why you put him as a benchmark. Well, for one, one of the only white elected officials in the country at the time to endorse him was the mayor of Burlington, Bernie Sanders. And so there is this through line. It's not even a through line, it's him. But there were so many interesting parallels. You know, he, So he was a kind of reaction to the move the party took towards Wall Street, where he said, no, this is you know, something needs to be done about this. And so he runs in 1984, very similar to Sanders, he runs as a symbolic candidate. He's basically running as a protest candidate, came in extremely late in the race, but then he really caught fire. The 84 race is described by a lot of people around him as, as just a magical one. And because he came in so late, he never had a he never had an actual shot at the nomination. The fix was in for Mondale, like out of the gate. All the unions were for him. It was over. But what he decides, he's like, I'm going to run again in 88 and I'm going to do it seriously. And I liked the, the Sanders parallels there, too, that Sanders kind of ran a symbolic run in, in 16 and then did it much more seriously in 2020. And people have forgotten how close he came to winning the nomination and in 1988. And he did it with what he called the the Rainbow Coalition, which, you know, if you think like, oh, Jesse Jackson, he's Martin Luther King's right hand man, maybe he just kind of ran as the civil rights candidate, like not at all. Like, obviously, he ran supportive of civil rights, but it was much more of a poor people's campaign that he was he was pulling together gay rights, women's rights, civil rights, workers' rights. And there was a farm crisis underway at the time. And so he got a stunning amount of support from farmers around the country. And so it was this, it's what the left has been trying to put together for so long, you know, a multiracial, working class, rural, urban coalition. And, and his argument was, the votes are there. They're just not voting. Some of them are registered and not voting. Some of them are just aren't registered. We need to give them something to fight for. And if the party had gone that direction, you know, maybe they still lose a few of those elections, but the potential to reshape the coalition was there to build that multi-racial working class coalition. And nobody tried to do it again until, really until Bernie Sanders. In many ways, that's what we're all trying to get back to and get over the finish line this time. Ryan Grimm, thank you for coming to the Current Affairs World Headquarters. Listeners can read you in The Intercept and they can pick up your book, We've Got People. It was great to be here. Thanks so much.